everybody. We're gonna. I think we're gonna go ahead and get started. Um, I think we've still got a few folks trickling in, but it's 9:05, and we want to respect everyone's time and want to give you George. Want to give you uh, the reason everybody's here. Um, my name is Matt Hain. I'm the guy that's been on all the emails. So uh, it's, I've gotten to meet several folks for the first time this morning and uh, see several uh, students and friends of the Study Center. So thanks so much for uh, registering and for being with us this week. Um, the North Carolina Study Center, if anyone's here for the first time today or unfamiliar, uh, we are a center for Christian life and Christian thought at UNC. Um, so this is very different now in the summer with students gone and post-second summer session. Um, usually this place is um, pretty chock full of students and uh, it's a center for hospitality. So we have coffee and tea out all the time, um, exam snacks, um, and also hosts a lot of programming, uh, educational programming for students. Um, trying to be like a Christian presence within UNC as an institution. Um, we're also really grateful to partner this week with Regent College. Uh, Regent um, is a, or you can describe it better, but a, a seminary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Graduate School of Theology. Graduate School of Theology. I'll share a little bit about the, the vision for Regent this week. Um, that we teach graduate courses across a number of disciplines, and we have amazing summer programs um, that we want to take about this week. about Regent on the table out front. So if George you know, says anything that piques your interest this week, please feel free to pick up uh, you know, brochure or uh, look through the course catalog there to learn more. Um, the genesis of what we're doing this week, uh, bringing Regent to Chapel Hill, um, kind of came out of a several, several years of a partnership uh, between the Study Center and Regent. We've had staff um, go up there and be blessed by learning from Regent faculty, um, board members, uh, folks from the community, and just think really highly of Regent and have kind of all been blessed by the education um, that they do. Students, I see David back there. Uh, we've, even, we've had UNC students go up. I think we have uh, three staff members and four or five UNC students who are up there right now um, who will be back to the course on Wednesday. Um, but they really focus uh, as, a, as a school of theology on education for all Christians, not just um, folks who are going into ministry. Um, and that, that's been a real gift of Regent to us. Um, so we're, we're just thrilled to have George here this week and to partner with Regent in this way. Um, and we also value your feedback this week. Uh, this is the first summer we've offered this. Um, this kind of all came about, uh, I think in March and April is when this really came together. Um, so this is a new venture and uh, we really value your feedback. So there'll be chances this week to um, kind of provide feedback as we're thinking about the future of offering Regent courses here in Chapel Hill. Um, just up front, kind of a couple of goals for the week. Um, or I guess hopes or aspirations for the week. Um, one would be, you know, very obvious, a deeper study of God's word. Um, for anyone who's had a chance to do the reading uh, that George assigned today, um, Hebrews is an intimidating book to lots of folks. Um, it's one of the books, one of the books of the Bible that many folks feel least familiar with, um, and feel kind of most intimidated, really diving deep in. And so. Um, grateful for George being here this week to help lead us deeper into um, the book of Hebrews, hopefully take away any, any of that intimidation that we might feel. Um, it's one of the richest and most theological books of the New Testament. Uh, so there's so much within it that um, we're going we're gonna to dive into this week. Um, another goal or aspiration for this week would be communal learning. Um, so as we kind of design this course and 
uh, talked to George and dreamed about it and had partners like Carl Humble. Where's Carl? Um, there's Carl. Kind of, kind of, you know, envisioning what this week could be like. Um, we're really trying not to go for the sage on the stage model. Um, so this is not, yeah. Even though we have a sage, and this is kind of a kind of a sage. Uh, you know, our our hope for this week is not just George imparting his knowledge to all of us like an information download, um, but really learning in community with one another. Um, so there will be a chance for discussion this week, uh, for processing in community, uh, turning to your partner. Um, to apply the teachings of Hebrews to our lives. Um, that's really a, a, one of the gifts of the Regent model is that Regent heavily emphasizes that, and that's one of our hopes for this week. Um, I wanted to say thank you to several folks who have helped make this week possible. So this is just a Monday thing. We won't do this every day. Um, but Hank Tarleton with InterVarsity Grad and Faculty. Um, Hank is, has an office here at the Study Center and is a wonderful partner, and um, we do so many things together. And thank you, Hank, for all you've done to help make this week possible. Um, also, Blacknell Presbyterian Church and Dave Dunderdale. Um, lots of Blacknell folks here. Thanks for partnering and uh, helping to support. Also, Chapel Hill Bible Church. Uh, Matt Smith could not be here today. Um, I think Matt's on a mission trip of some sort right now. Um, but Bible Church has been a wonderful partner and grateful to have several Bible Church folks here. Um, Holy Trinity Anglican Church of Chapel Hill and Dave Hyman. And also Holy Trinity Anglican Church of Raleigh, um, John Yates and the staff there for promoting this week. Um, also, I've already mentioned him, but Carl Umble has been a um, kind of a vital partner in helping us brainstorm and um, plan for this week. Uh, and last but not least, George Guthrie. Thank you, uh, George, for coming all the way and uh, from Vancouver to be here with us this week. A um, couple quick just kind of housekeeping items. Uh, if anyone needs a restroom, it's either through this door or through this hallway and down that hallway at the end of the hall. Um, there's a restroom right there. Um, we'll have the breakfast food out and the coffee and tea each morning from 8.30 to 9. Um, so as you get to know folks this week, if you want to come early for a conversation or to you know, speak with George before the class begins, um, feel free to arrive at 8.30. And then we'll still have uh, tea and coffee out throughout the course. There will be like an intermission, I believe, um, and time for snacks and things like that. Um, Lunches this week, thanks to the generosity of um, some friends of the study center who have chosen to remain anonymous, we have two wonderful lunch opportunities this week. The first is tomorrow. Um, we're catering root cellar here, um, and that's totally optional, but just a chance to continue learning that we do during the course time uh, in community. We'll set it up a face style and be able to spread out throughout the house. Um, and then on Thursday, uh, Lula's, which many of you probably know as the former Spanky's, um, they, we have the upstairs room reserved there um, for a lunch. We um, have sent out the email with the type form registration, so hopefully everyone's gotten that. If you haven't and you'd like to join on Thursday, you can also, um, at the front table there, just sign up with your lunch order, um, and we'll have it placed that way. We're going to try to wrap up just like 10 minutes early that day to get to Lulu's by noon, um, and they'll have our orders already set, so it should be a pretty, pretty quick process um, to get our food that day. Um, Finally, Wednesday evening, uh, we have at 6 p.m. kind of a casual reception here. We'll have hors d'oeuvres, um, and this is in partnership with the Region Alumni Office. So there will be some uh, local Region alumni um, open to the community, too. We'd love for any of you to join who are interested um, and want to learn more about Region, want to talk to George more at length. Um, and that's a great chance to invite friends. So if you have um, friends this week who considered you know, taking the course but couldn't because of work or family commitments, uh, Wednesday is a great chance to get just a small taste of what we're doing this week. 
Um, so it'll be reception at six, and then at seven, George will be giving a, an address or a lecture on um, how the New Testament authors um, understand and use the Old Testament in writing scripture. Um, and so that, that'll be a real treat. We're, we're looking forward to that. Um, also, final thing, several folks have asked me, you know, Matt, I need to miss a day, or I've got a conflict that I need to leave 20 minutes early. Is that okay? Um, that is totally fine. We know that the course time, there's, there's no ideal time that works for everyone. Uh, folks have busy lives and schedules and family and work commitments. Um, so if you're in that boat and you need to either come late or arrive just a little bit, uh, arrive a little bit late or leave early one day, that is totally fine. Um, and don't, don't feel shy about having to get up and, and head out. Um, with that, I think it's time to introduce uh, George more formally, and then we'll give him the floor. Um, Dr. George Guthrie is professor of New Testament at Regent College. Uh, before coming to Regent in 2018, he taught at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, and he served there as the Benjamin W. Perry Professor of Bible and as a fellow in the Ryan Center for Biblical Studies. Uh, he's one of the world's premier scholars on the book of Hebrews, and he has published commentaries on the book of Hebrews, uh, James, and 2 Corinthians, as well as numerous articles, book chapters, and book reviews. Um, so kind of wide-ranging wide scholarship. Uh, he is a highly sought-after lecturer, and he's taught across North America, in the United Kingdom, Germany, Hong Kong, South Africa, Israel. Um, but I learned yesterday that this is his first time at Chapel Hill. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's been across the world, but he's not been here until, <laughs> until this week. So we'll have to do, you know, the old well, we'll give him the full tour this week so he can experience uh, Chapel Hill. Uh, he describes his calling, and I love this, um, as helping church leaders and lay people learn how to read the Bible well and discipling students in living their whole lives as followers of Christ. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited for George to exemplify that for us this week and for us to get to uh, receive that from him. And I'd like to read just a short quote um, from George. This is the commentary in the assigned book for the week. Um, you can order it on Amazon or uh, for anyone who doesn't have it yet, let us know. We can help make sure you get it. Um, but this quote I came across this weekend preparing for today. It's on page 34. And uh, George says, when I teach a class on Hebrews, I often begin the first day of lecture by dressing up in the garb of the ancient Mediterranean world <laughs> and reading a large portion of the book. <laughs> so I don't, George, I don't know if you have a, a costume change planned as part of this, or, um, but the floor is yours. So. <laughs> Thank you. It is so good to be with you. I, I do bring you greetings from Regent College. Uh, I called my wife yesterday when I got into the airport and I said, I'm warm. It's, it's warm here, which is amazing. Uh, we live in Vancouver, British Columbia now, which is uh, amazingly uh, beautiful and, and a wonderful place. And I'll talk to you a little bit about our transition, um, kind of some of the dynamics we're experiencing as we interface with people, some of whom have never heard anything at all about Christianity. I was sharing with someone right before the uh, uh, class started this morning that I've had a number of conversations this year with people who uh, ask me what I teach, and, and I say New Testament, and I'll, and I'll ask them, you know, do you know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Bible? And they'll respond, you know, I've, I've never heard those terms before. So we're back at a situation uh, where 
you know, you're, you're dealing with people who are starting from scratch, but, but the wonderful thing is the gospel really is good news uh, for them a lot of times. We, uh, we'll share with you a little bit about some of our interactions that we're having with them. Uh, Regent was started back in the 1960s as a graduate school. It was based on kind of a British model. Uh, Regent planned on being a college that would be attached to a university. So uh, we were strategically planted on the campus of the University of British Columbia. We are affiliated with the university, but not formally a part of that entity. So we have an affiliation, which allows us to be there physically. We have our own property and that type of thing. But the idea was from the beginning that Regent would be uh, a graduate training place for people from across uh, various kinds of occupations, vocations in life. It was really targeted to be kind of an unseminary, if you will. That was the, the uh, PR for a number of years. It wasn't intended just to appeal to people who were going into full-time vocational ministry. Uh, it really wanted to reach out to people in government, in the arts, uh, people who were lawyers. And that really has maintained a part of the DNA uh, through the years. So Regents are uh, very diverse in terms of the types of people uh, who we are teaching and who we have there. We do have folks who are going into full-time pastoral ministry. They're going uh, overseas as missionaries and that kind of thing. But it's really a very rich mix of people from a wide variety of, of contexts. And uh, one of the wonderful programs that we have at Regent is our summer program. So. Uh, N.T. Wright was there last week, uh, if you know his name. Uh, we've had people like John Walton, Tremper Longman, uh, Lynn Kohick, a number of different scholars uh, throughout the summer. And it's uh, set up that way so that people like you can come and take a week or two weeks and stay in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, for that time and take uh, courses as you go along. My wife is a lifelong learner. She has taken three courses this summer, uh, one on the history of spirituality. She's taken a course um, on kind of family and sexuality and a course on technology. And uh, it's, it's just a, a great chance for people to come and really grow in their faith, uh, to grow in their relationship with the Lord and, and meet other people from around the world who are very stimulating. Um, let me tell you real briefly how we got to, to Regent, and then we're going to kind of launch into what we want to do this week and give you an idea of what we're going to try to accomplish with the course. Um, back in 2013, Pat and I were on a research leave in uh, Cambridge, England. We were there for about nine months and um, had a wonderful time in terms of the, the research and scholarship. There's a library there called Tyndall House, which was founded back in the 1940s. It was designed to give PhD students who were evangelical at Cambridge a place to come and have community and study even while they were doing their PhD uh, at Cambridge University. And so we have gone there a number of times through the years. And in 2013, we were there and I was finishing up work on my commentary on 2 Corinthians. But we found ourselves just falling into these mentoring relationships with all these young families who were living right there in the vicinity and, um, you know, doing things like walking across the garden and picking up the baby from the Slovakians and taking him around the garden as kind of surrogate grandparents and uh, meeting with couples about their marriage, talking about parenting, 
Uh, in fact, uh, the next summer we were back, seven of those couples asked us to do kind of a mini parenting class because they had gotten to meet our older kids. And uh, by God's grace, they thought that our kids were pretty great, which <laughs> we, we do too. Uh, but we, uh, we came back in 2013 having the ground shifted under our feet a bit. We didn't know what was going on. Uh, we'd been at Union at that time, Union University, for about 25 years or so. And uh, had sensed a call there, God had kept us there. We'd had opportunities to go other places. But this was different, and uh, we didn't know what was going on, but we went into kind of a holding pattern for about three years, and um, we're just waiting. And didn't even know that a position had come open at Regent, but we were at a professional meeting down in San Antonio, Texas, and um, I was at a, a breakfast with Phil Long, who taught Old Testament at Regent. He's just retired. And uh, he, he just talked to me. In fact, Drew Trotter, who some of you know, had seen me in the hall and said, hey, you need to talk to Phil because Ricky Watts is going back to Australia and they have a New Testament position open and, and I think Phil would like to talk to you about that. So we ended up uh, connecting and um, we felt at that point that we had to go through the, the uh, conversation. So we opened up to just walking through that conversation and at every point, uh, there were just green lights, and it seemed very clear that this is what God wanted us to do. And our real vision in going to Regent was, uh, of course, to continue to grow in, in what I do, for my wife to continue to grow as a learner. But also, um, we knew that we were going there to walk with families, to walk with young singles, uh, young couples, young families, and just, just try to help them get grounding uh, personally, in life, theologically, spiritually, just to be a part of a community that was committed to that. And we um, went knowing that we were going to need to live close to the school, uh, which would really take God opening uh, some doors because uh, housing is so expensive in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's the most expensive place to live in North America now. Uh, so it's, it's uh, just kind of uh, amazing. But we uh, are in a townhouse just about three quarters of a mile from campus. So I walk to work a lot of days and we have students over uh, into our home a lot. Uh, so what you're doing here with the study center, kind of being in a university context, trying to walk with people in this kind of context is really what, what Regent's about and it's really what we uh, feel called to. So um, why am I here this week? Well, uh, it's a joy to be in a room with a bunch of Southerners, uh, first of all. Uh, it just feels like coming home. I got to the place where I'm staying last night, magnolias in the front yard, heat and humidity everywhere. And uh, I called Pat and I said, yeah, this is, this is home. I mean, this, you know, this is very much like home. Um, but what we're wanting to do this week, of course, is to uh, – to have an opportunity for all of us, first of all, just to open up our lives to the book of Hebrews, try to understand what is going on in this book. Uh, Hebrews is like landing in San Francisco and trying to navigate those streets of San Francisco without a map. You know, if, if you first come to a big city like that, it feels very disoriented. It, it feels like you're just uh, not really sure where to go, not sure how this thing is laid out. But the book um, really makes a lot of sense once you kind of have a map to understand what's going on with it. And so one thing that we're going to do this week is 
kind of work our way through how the book works, how the book works, and we're going to kind of go do that step by step. We won't get to go through the whole book, obviously. We're doing just a small course here of about 15 hours. I normally take over 40 hours uh, when I'm teaching the book of Hebrews, but we're going to look specifically at the, the movements that deal with Christology, with Jesus himself. So we want to understand the book from uh, just the standpoint of uh, how does this thing work? What do these uh, terms mean? How is the author using the Old Testament? That type of thing. Uh, but more importantly, I want us to really see Jesus more clearly through this book. Um, a number of places the author says, consider Jesus. Rivet your attention on Jesus. Try to understand really who Christ is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Uh, this week is very much not about me. Uh, if you come and you have a good experience with uh, the teaching that I do this week, with our time together, that'll be great. I'm glad. I hope you don't have a poor experience of that. But if, if all you get is just kind of an in, enjoyable class and, and, you know, encounter me, then it's kind of like me using a really fine conditioner on my hair in the morning, right? Uh, it's going to feel good for a moment, but it's not going to really have any long-term effect. Uh, so uh, I mean that. So, so what I would rather do is have you sink down into this book and really start to be intrigued by what's going on in this book and through the book to have a clearer picture of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. And if that happens, then we will have had um, a really good week together. Now, I know a few of you are taking the course for credit. Can I see the hands of those brave souls who are taking the course for credit? Okay, we have a few. So if we could kind of touch base at the break, we'll just talk about uh, what we need to do there. All right, uh, today what we're going to uh, do is we're going to kind of work our way through an introduction to the book and then we're going to launch into the introduction to the book itself. We're going to look at an intro to Hebrews as a book and then we're going to go to 1, 1 through 4 to look at the author's introduction to Hebrews and then try to make it all the way through at least the first chapter, probably get to about chapter 2, verse 4 this morning. We'll take a break um, as we go along. But before we launch in, let me ask, how many of you actually have the commentary and you've kind of tr been beginning to track with the commentary, just so I can know kind of what we're dealing with here? Okay, wow, a lot of people, a lot of people in the room. Um, all right, so... If you can, do your best to, to kind of read along with us as we go today. But I want to do something that um, some of you may have already um, taken a look and read that uh, fictional, historical fiction piece that I wrote at the beginning of the book. I want to read that again and just have you use your imagination to start with this morning to think about what it would have been like to have been a person the early 60s AD, uh, who was in Rome, part of this fledgling movement of Jesus' followers, and yet was starting to experience the heat of difficulty and persecution. Uh, we know that uh, toward the middle of the 60s, uh, Emperor Nero, who had actually been a good emperor for a number of years until he killed his mom, 
And then he started driving his race chariot around the city, quoting po poetry in the pubs, and, uh, and kind of went crazy a bit. But he became a, a harsh persecutor of Christians in the mid-60s. So um, we'll talk about the fact that Hebrews probably was written at a time when that level of persecution was just on the horizon. It was just coming, and uh, pressure was starting to be exerted against the church. But I want to read through, it'll take a few minutes just to kind of read through this fictional piece for the sake of those of you who haven't read it yet, uh, but also even if you have, just again, listen to it and settle into it. Because Hebrews was not written as a theological treatise. It wasn't written as just kind of this stimulating academic type of approach to thinking about theology. It was written from a pastoral impulse to try to help people hang in there in the faith in, in the face of increasing persecution and increasing pressure that would draw them away from Christ and the church. So let me begin uh, with this, and then we'll have a word of prayer and get right into an introduction to the book itself. Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second-story apartment located in a slum on the slope of Escaline Hill in Rome. As rain pelted the age-worn wall outside, a plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on the makeshift table. The room had turned dark with the coming of this storm, and Antonius lit a small oil lamp against the gloom. With the light, hungry roaches materialized, scampering to the dark safety of cracks in the wall. In the apartment next door, a baby cried, and the infant's father screamed obscenities at the infant's mother. An urgent conversation rose and then faded as an unseen pair of business partners walked down the stairs. Somewhere in the muddy street below, a unit of Roman soldiers marched past, driven under sharp orders from its commander, and Antonius sat alone, thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as gnats darting to and fro in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment, and each time he turned the other cheek, it received a slap. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom, but since the expulsion of Jews under the Emperor Claudius, Christians had continued to be harassed in various degrees by both Jews and pagans. Upon the expulsion, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings, and the seizure of their properties. That was almost 15 years ago now. Antonius had not been part of the church at that time, but had heard about the conflict. In fact, his own grandfather, ruler of the synagogue of the Augustenses, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of the Jesus followers, Christians. When at 17, Antonius Converted to Christianity, the old man almost died, declaring Antonius dead in a shouting match that ended in tears and a tattered relationship. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself. And now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. Footsteps in the hall, a scream in the night, 
meaningless events that nevertheless set Antonius' heart racing. He had been told the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience was different than he expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken, that the righteous judge would vindicate his new covenant people. Did not the scriptures, speaking of the Messiah, say that God had put all things in subjection under his feet? But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief, and some in their disillusionment doubted and left the church altogether. Antonius Bar David remembered the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community the joy of the festivals, and the solemn celebrations of the calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's community, but genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors, and he missed members of his family. He watched them from a distance as they walked together to market by the Tiber River. Some of them still would not speak to him and passed him on the street as they would a Gentile. That was very difficult, and today his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp blanket. To make matters worse, he was one of the poorer members of the church. When Antonius Bar David became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's apprentice in the Jewish quarter. He now spent his days sorting rotting produce, sweeping the floor, swatting flies, and receiving orders from obnoxious Roman slaves shopping for rich mistresses. He stooped so low as to take pieces of rotten fruit home to supplement his meager food supply. Even rich men's slaves fared better. Earlier in the week, Gaius, the kitchen slave of an equestrian who lived in the area, tossed him a handful of overripe figs, saying, Here, Christian, change your cannibalistic diet by taking a bit of good fruit. Laughter hung with the gnats in the air. To be poor and a Christian invited double ridicule. Antonius had missed the weekly meal and worship for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat toward the little house group. Spiritual itch warned him, cautioning him concerning his loss of perspective. And yet in recent days, he had begun to snuff out such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius's bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumor had it, that the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonius' curiosity was aroused, and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. Entering the gathering room, he spoke greetings to several friends who also looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and friendly banter, but dejection hung like a cloud over the room. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was a bit out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved, stood smiling before the group of about 20, his hands shaking slightly from advancing age. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath and explained he had talked the other leaders into allowing his group the first reading of the scroll. 
With a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began reading with vigor. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. At many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay. I hope that pulls you into the world of Hebrews a bit. Let me tell you some reasons why I'm excited about the opportunity to study this book this week, and then let's talk a bit about uh, authorship and destination, the date, uh, what we know about that. So we already have uh, taken a look at the, uh, the young man named Antonius, who I place in Rome there in the mid-60s. And we're going to kind of walk our way through and unpack that um, as we go along. Uh, I'm excited about our study of this book because Hebrews, as you can tell from that story, is about real-life situations in the church. It is <coughs> relevant because if you live as a Christ follower in the world, you're going to have various kinds of pressures come to bear on your life. Uh, they may be intellectual. They may be spiritual uh, just relational kind of dynamics that you face with family, with friends. There are going to be various kinds of pressures that really kind of uh, at times get to be discouraging and we can uh, be tempted, those of us who are, are already Christ followers, we can be tempted to kind of be drawn away from having a clarity in terms of the identity of Christ, uh, what Jesus has accomplished for us. I don't know if you heard uh, in the news this past week, but Joshua Harris, uh, who you probably remember uh, as the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, um, this last week, Joshua Harris had a, a two different announcements. Uh, the first announcement was that he and his wife were separating. Uh, he had actually uh, been a student at Regent a number of years ago. He was processing, uh, kind of repented from uh, writing the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And uh, this last week, he came out with an announcement that he and his wife were, were actually separating, followed by an announcement that he no longer considers himself a, a Christ follower. You know, which is uh, deeply discouraging to uh, people who knew him, knew, knew his work, and that kind of thing. But you see this happening from time to time where someone who has been very visible has uh, come to a place where they decide, yeah, this just really isn't what it was cracked up to be, and I've, I've kind of gotten perspective now, I've grown as a person, and therefore I, I no longer believe that uh, Jesus really uh, was who he claimed to be. So the book is really relevant. If you, if you are involved in ministry at all, you deal with people who, who are struggling in various ways with hanging in there, persevering, in the faith. And so we'll see that as we go along. We'll talk about various kinds of dynamics that Hebrews can help us with. Uh, the second reason I'm excited about the book is it is unique among the writings of the New Testament. Hebrews is just a different animal in terms of the, what it's trying to do, the way it's laid out. We'll talk about the fact that this was probably a sermon to begin with. Um, it's one of the, the best of ancient Jewish forms of sermons that we have in existence in the world. And so this book is unique in the way it tries to do what it is doing. And um, it also 
has uh, a complexity to its message that you don't find in other parts of the New Testament. Uh, for instance, the idea of Jesus as high priest, you don't have anywhere else. This is something that the author of Hebrews does as he is reflecting on scripture, uh, specifically Psalm 110. And we're gonna find that he unpacks that in a way that is wonderfully creative and rich. And um, that's gonna be very exciting. Third reason I'm excited is it is a complex puzzle uh, from its structure. And so um, I think as we walk our way through it and try to, try to just unravel a bit of you know, the keys in Hebrews that help us understand the twists and turns, uh, I think we'll have a, a really good time doing that. And, and then finally, my hope is, and uh, I'm excited about this book because I think it is powerful and life-changing in its message. And uh, so I'm excited that we would just open our lives up to it this week and see what happens as we go along. All right, well, let's launch in, and uh, we're going to talk a bit about the authorship and date and that kind of thing, and then come up for air, and I'll give you a chance to ask some questions as we go along. But uh, let's talk about what we know about the author. So first of all, some views on authorship. Uh, my wife, Pat, and I call this the question, because if we're out and about somewhere and uh, a person who has been a Christ follower for a while finds that I've done some stuff on the book of Hebrews, they may not know anything else to ask, but they know to ask, well, who do you think wrote the book? You know, who is the author of the book? Um, so in the early church, you really had a divide between the eastern part and the western part of the church. The eastern part being really kind of centered on Alexandria and Egypt, the western part of the church uh, centered on Rome. In the east, they recognized that the book was not um, Paul's style, but there were many of the early church leaders who thought that Paul may have written this book, or at least it was closely associated with Paul. There's a, an early papyrus uh, from about 200 AD, P46, that places Hebrews just after Romans, uh, associated with Paul's collection of writings. Uh, Clement of Alexandria uh, believed that Paul wrote the book, but wrote it originally in Hebrew, and then Luke translated it for the Greeks. That was uh, Clement of Alexandria, who lived in the latter part of the second century. Uh, Origen, who was 185 to 253, believed the book was written by a disciple of Paul, uh, but his was the famous statement that said, but who wrote the book? Only God knows. Only God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. In the western part of the church associated uh, with Rome, they did not hold to Pauline authorship until about the fifth century. So early in the church, first centuries of the church, there was this view that no, Paul did not write the book. So Tertullian, who was also latter part of the second century, believed that Barnabas wrote the book. And there were a number of scholars through the years who held to that uh, position. A presbyter named Gaius uh, does not include Hebrews among Paul's writings. This is reported to us by the church historian Eusebius. Uh, Augustine and Jerome held it was Pauline, so by the time you get to their period, about the fifth century, um, they held that it, it was written by Paul, and really from that point on through uh, the Middle Ages, you had the dominant view being that Paul wrote this book. 
The question was really uh, reopened in the Renaissance and Reformation period. And um, so there were people like uh, Luther, for instance, who believed that Apollos wrote the book. This was uh, the first time that we know of that someone suggested this uh, scholar of the first century, Apollos, as being the author of the book. Well, why not Paul? Most scholars today of any stripe do not believe that Paul was the author. So let me give you a few reasons why we don't think that Paul actually wrote Hebrews, and then we'll look at some clues on authorship and see if we can figure out some things about this person who wrote the book. Uh, first of all, the vocabulary and images of Hebrews are not common to Paul. There are about 170 terms that are only used uh, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The vocabulary is rich and diverse. You only have a, a, a more rich vocabulary from Luke. Luke is another uh, very educated person that you have among the writers of the New Testament. And Luke also has uh, really a rich and, and advanced and diverse vocabulary like Hebrews. But Hebrews is a book that, um, that uses uh, vocabulary and images that are just not common to Paul. Of course, Paul was a person who knew a lot about ships and, and shipwrecks and all of that kind of thing. But Paul doesn't use that language when he's explaining uh, theology or truths that he's wanting to unpack. Hebrews does. Hebrews uses images like an anchor that uh, is something that gives stability. And there are a number of other images that Hebrews uses that are really not common to Paul. The way that the author introduces the Old Testament, um, we're going to talk, uh, especially Wednesday night, about the beauty of the use of the Old Testament in the New. And a very common introductory formula that Paul uses is, it is written. It is written. Do you remember that uh, when Paul is writing and he's getting ready to introduce an Old Testament passage? He says, it is written, and then he'll quote the passage. Hebrews uh, uses the terminology of he says. The scriptures are presented as if they are falling from the lips of God. He says, and then he'll quote uh, the passage. It's interesting that in Hebrews, you have normally uh, God speaking scripture, but you also have several places where the Holy Spirit says. So when the author is introducing Psalm 95 and chapter 3, verse 7 and following, he says, as the Spirit says, and then he'll quote Psalm 95. There are several places where the Son speaks scripture, where Jesus is the one who actually speaks scripture, and he's speaking it back to God a lot of times. So you have Jesus speaking scripture back to God the Father, God the Son speaking to the Father. Those places where the author uh, is quoting a passage that obviously is written by a human being speaking to God, like Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you give thought to him. When he does that, then he reverts to a formula of introduction that is ambiguous. Uh, there with that passage, he says, someone somewhere says. Remember that? And uh, that is not because the author forgot where Psalm 8 was. This was one of the most popular psalms in the first century in Judaism. 
Uh, what he's doing there is he's backing off and using ambiguous language because he wants to keep the focus on Scripture as primarily being spoken by God. All right? So it's, it's not that he's forgotten. It's, it's just that he's using kind of rhetorical technique to keep the focus on God as the primary speaker of Scripture. Um, so you have uh, this way of introducing the Old Testament. And then finally, the author depicts himself as having received the gospel from the original witnesses. So in chapter 2, verse 3, he says that, that the word of salvation was originally spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard, and then God bore witness to their message. And we're going to talk about that hopefully at the end of our time together this morning. Uh, Paul doesn't talk about that when he talks about receiving the word of salvation. Um, in a number of passages like Galatians 1, 11 and following, Paul says, I got the message directly from the Lord himself. Uh, so you remember Paul's experience on the Damascus Road that we read about uh, several times, three times in Acts, Acts 9, 21, 26. Uh, you have this, this idea that uh, Paul is receiving his commissioning and his message of the gospel directly from the Lord himself. So those are some reasons why we don't think that Paul wrote this book. Now, the best of, of scholarship would say the book has strands of Pauline theology. So there's strands of theology here that very much mesh with Paul. So some of us believe that this was a person who was a part of Paul's mission, uh, a co-worker with Paul, but not Paul himself. So what do we know? What are some clues about the author from the book itself? Well, let me give you several here to think about. First of all, the author was very well educated. As I've already mentioned, uh, you have a, a vast, rich vocabulary. You have over 20 identifiable rhetorical techniques. Uh, in the ancient world, when you went for a PhD, what you were studying was public presentation. How, how do you stand and deliver a powerful oratory because that moves the world? That's how you change the world is by communicating in a way that is dynamic and powerful and changes people's lives. Um, so the author uses a number of rhetorical techniques that we'll see even this morning in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, he also interestingly, interestingly uses a number of rabbinic techniques. Um, these are techniques that were used by the rabbis early on. Um, some of them were developed by Hillel, who was a famous rabbi of the period. And um, these techniques are used in unpacking scripture. And we're going to see these right from the start. When we get to chapter 1, verses 5 and following, you have that string of Old Testament quotations there. There are several different rabbinic techniques of how you pull together and explain scripture that we're going to find there. And so this author obviously had grown up, was richly educated in the synagogue of the first century. So someone who probably had formal education uh, in that broader world in a place like Alexandria or Tarsus, uh, two of the great centers of learning in the ancient world. <clears throat> but also someone who had been educated and trained in the context of the Jewish synagogue. Secondly, the author not only was well-educated, but was a powerful preacher of the Old Testament. 
So whoever this person was, uh, they are a person who could marshal these skills and this training to bring the Old Testament scriptures alive, to unpack them in a way that was very dynamic, <clears throat> very, very powerful. We have uh, 35 to 37 quotes of the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we have another 35 or so overt allusions to places in the Old Testament. And then loads of uh, just general references. And so <clears throat> the author is, um, is using the Old Testament to, to unpack and explain who Jesus is, uh, how to understand the work of Jesus in his sacrifice for sins as kind of a culmination of what God was doing, the climactic moment of what God was doing in the world. And so we're going to find that this person is, is a powerful communicator of the Old Testament. And then the third thing that we know about this person is that um, the author was deeply committed as a pastoral leader. Deeply committed. There's a yearning that you hear in Hebrews. Uh, the author is speaking from experience in terms of his own persecution and feeling of, of pressure from the world. In chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, he, he asked the church, pray for me, pray for me. I'm hoping I'm going to be able to come to you soon, but, but I need you to pray for me now. But uh, this book is, is really him trying, just yearning to help people who have one foot out the door. If you can just imagine the image that there are people who are still there in the church, but, but they're just kind of on their way out. They're just, you know, poised to, to say, this is enough, I'm, I'm done. And what the author's doing is he's reaching out to them in these powerful words, and he's trying to, to pull them back into a close relationship with Christ and Christ's church. All right? So the author is, is, this, uh, is this amazing leader who combines pastoral heart, great education, uh, someone who is uh, passionate about the history of uh, the scriptures and their tradition. Well, my best guess on authorship is that this is someone like Apollos. So I'm kind of following Luther uh, in that. Listen to the description that Luke gives of Apollos in Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 28 and following. He writes this, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, arrived in Ephesus. He was an eloquent speaker, aner logios, Greek language there means someone who was really trained in advanced rhetoric, well versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and with great enthusiasm, he spoke and taught accurately the facts about Jesus, although he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak out fearlessly in the synagogue. When he moved to Achaia, he refuted the Jews vigorously in public debate. Of course, he was Jewish himself, um, demonstrating from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So here we have someone who is powerful in scriptures, uh, obviously was very advanced in education, someone who in the Christian movement was able to bring this to bear in 
arguing for the, the veracity of the message of the scripture. Well, at the end of the day, we, we don't know for sure. I can't wait to see the Lord face to face, and I have a few theological questions I want to ask, but then I want to ask to meet the author of Hebrews and say, hey, did, did I get it right? You know, um, <clears throat> Bill Lane, uh, <clears throat> Bill was a scholar who uh, wrote the two-volume word biblical commentary on the book of Hebrews, and Bill um, was my mentor for the last 10 years of his life. He had... Um, he, he contracted cancer and died of cancer about 17, 18 years ago now. Um, but at Bill's funeral, um, his daughter was standing with um, her child, and um, Bill's grandson just turned to um, Bill's daughter during the funeral and said, well, Mom, I guess Grandpa knows who wrote the book of Hebrews now. <laughs> I love that story. I love that story. Um, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day who wrote the book because what we have here is, is amazing and powerful, but it, it does help us think about what the author was trying to do, what the author was trying to accomplish. Um, so let's, let's just think a little bit more about the idea of uh, the date and uh, location to which this book was written. Date and destination. Most scholars today would say that Hebrews was written to the church in Rome because of uh, chapter 13, verse 24, where the author writes, the Italians uh, send you greeting. The Italians send you greeting. Uh, in Rome at this time, you had a, a population of about 40 to 60,000 Jews. Um, if you think about Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, you had Jews come to the day of Pentecost there in probably 33 AD. Scholars debate on whether it was 30 or 33. Um, but they came to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and there they experienced the pouring out of the Spirit, and we believe that some of those went back to Rome and established the church in Rome. Um, so we know that the tradition of the church in Rome is, um, goes back to very early in the, in the first century. Uh, first, Clement, in speaking about... Um, elders in the church in Rome uses the, um, the terminology of the leaders, hegumenoi, the leaders. And you have that same terminology in the book of Hebrews. In fact, several books from the first century or right at the beginning of the second century, they don't normally call their leaders elders or pastors. They use just the language of the leaders. And that seems to be a pretty consistent thing with churches from that area. So um, one of the things that we think probably is the case is that this book was written to this church in this large urban center, which was at the center of the world. Um, it's interesting if you think about the New Testament literature generally. Right now I'm finishing a commentary on Philippians. Uh, you think about books like 1 Peter, the book of Philippians, and others. All that were, were kind of coming out of this Roman context somewhere around AD 60. Uh, you have a lot of this interaction. Uh, I had a PhD student actually do um, a PhD dissertation on the relationship between Hebrews and 1 Peter from a literary standpoint. Uh, she was using probability theory for some of the, you who are engineers, engineering background. She developed a means of looking at that from a, a literary standpoint, and she concluded that there was a direct literary relationship between Hebrews and 1 Peter. 
because you have a lot of similar language between uh, those two books. It's more complex than that, but it's, uh, it's, it's just interesting to think about what all was going on in this church at that time. So uh, the idea is that it was written to uh, a church in Rome, uh, probably written to people, certainly, who had a rich background in Judaism, in the Jewish synagogue. Uh, these are folks who now probably are part of house churches from across the city of Rome, but they had come out of a synagogue context and, and the richness of the language and the theology that you would have had in uh, the rabbinic teaching of the synagogue. But the third thing is that these are people who are now struggling with persevering in the faith, um, which really brings us to the reason for this book. We find imagery here of, of wandering in the wilderness. Uh, we are on a journey. Um, these are people who, some of whom are being tempted to go back probably to mainline Judaism. Now, in, in my opening illustration, I used the language of Christianity. But understand that, that folks in the church at this time would not have seen themselves as a part of a new religion. It wasn't that they were really converting from Judaism to Christianity. They saw themselves as fulfilled Jews. Many of the people in this church would have been Jewish ethnically, but they see themselves as the inheritors of the covenants and the traditions as just believing in the Messiah, Jesus, um, and believing that what God had promised in the Old Testament scriptures were now being brought to fulfillment. So it wasn't that they were stopping and doing something else. It was that they were really in the culmination of the ages. You had numerous Judaisms. Uh, in the first century. There wasn't just kind of one unified Judaism. You had numerous Judaisms, branches of Judaism, and I think even Jews of the time would have seen the Jesus movement as, a, as another branch, one that was very dangerous, some of them would have thought, uh, one that was problematic, um, but they would have seen it and understood it as, as Judaism, as a part of Judaism. So when I talk about people leaving the church, it's not that they're going back to another religion. It's going, they're, they're moving back over to kind of what we might say is Judaism proper, you know, the, kind of the mainline Judaism, which was a, a, a religion that was an official religion according to the Roman government. In other words, they had permission to uh, practice their religion freely. They didn't have to offer sacrifices to the emperor and that kind of thing. Um, so th this is uh, a people in this group probably uh, house churches, a number of house churches spread through Rome, some of whom are now being tempted to go back to Judaism proper. And as I said earlier, it's probably about somewhere around AD 64, 65, something like that. Uh, these people had been believers for a while. Uh, the author tells us in chapter 10 that they had faced difficulties in the past, and now they're again under increased persecution. In the late 40s, uh, the historian Suetonius tells us that the Emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. You might remember that place in the New Testament where um, Apollos, uh, or excuse me, Priscilla and Aquila come to Corinth because they had been among those who were expelled from Rome as Jews. Suetonius says that the reason why Claudius did that was because of the riots that were taking place at the instigation of someone named Crestus. Now, Crestus was a common slave name 
And it may be that what uh, Suetonius was doing was getting Crestus confused with Christus. And so it may be that you had kind of riots taking place, um, unrest because of what was going on in the Christian movement as it interfaced with Judaism at that time. So these are people who had faced difficulties in the past and now we're looking at uh, increased persecution. So those are some thoughts on date. <clears throat> Let me say a word about the purpose of the book and just another word about relevance and then we'll, we'll push the pause button and see if you have some questions that you would like to ask. In terms of the purpose of the book, Hebrews was written to exhort struggling believers to persevere in Christ following. To exhort struggling believers to persevere in Christ following on the basis of right thinking about God's Son and the gospel. Let me say that again. The purpose of the book of Hebrews was to exhort struggling believers to persevere in Christ following on the basis of right thinking about God's Son and the gospel. In essence, at the heart of this book is the idea that God has spoken into the world. He spoke preeminently in the person of his son, Jesus. And you need to endure in listening to that message in order to receive God's new covenant promises. So the author's idea is that God really has spoken into the world preeminently in the person of Jesus himself and that we need to persevere in holding on to that word that came through Jesus. So uh, at the beginning of my Hebrews classes, I often really emphasize this point. This is kind of the heart of what Hebrews is doing, that your perseverance in the Christian faith will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Okay, let's just read that out loud together. Can we do that? Let's read that out loud together. Your perseverance in the Christian day will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. I think that uh, when I say that, don't hear me saying that, well, you've just got to have all your theology sorted out, right? Um, it, it is, it does have to do with what you believe. The way you think about the world is vitally important. But, but this is a type of knowledge and understanding that is also deeply relational. It's not just having your theology, it's not less than that, but it's more than just being able to fill in all the right blanks with the right answers. It's, it's something that goes deeper than that. There's a relational dynamic as we live in the community of faith together, um, as we live for God and Christ in this world. Uh, it's profoundly relational. Uh, but I, I think it starts with a foundation of a understanding, thinking uh, in the right ways. In terms of the relevance of the book, let me, uh, let me just say one further word about that. When um, I was first asked to write the uh, NIV application commentary that you are using this week, I was talking to someone beforehand um, that, you know, a lot of water's gone under the bridge. I mean, over 20 years ago now, this book came out in 1998. Some of the dynamics of the culture are profoundly different than they were 20 years ago. 
So when I talk about post-modernity and modernity and that kind of thing, um, we are way on down the road now in terms of some of those dynamics in the culture. Um, I actually think that we have reason to hope um, coming out of some of the things that we're seeing as people live in and experience a profoundly postmodern culture. And we can talk about that um, as we go along. I, I actually see people in my context, which is profoundly postmodern. I mean, it's way beyond anything that you experience here. Uh, but, but what we see there is it, it almost as if you, you go back to um, just the ground floor with people where they don't have all of the cultural veneer of Christianity that you have to kind of pull apart and dig through to get down to where they're really living and their real understanding of who God is and who Christ is. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. Um, but in terms of the, of the relevance, back at that time, um, there was a guy at Zondervan Publishers named Jack Kohacek who was an acquisitions ed editor and wonderful guy. He's probably the best or at least one of the top two editors I ever worked with uh, in Christian publishing. And Jack, um, when we sat down to have a meal together for him to talk to me about the possibility of, of writing this book, he said, I really want to see what you do with Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 which is the apostasy passage there in, in chapter 6 that says it's impossible to renew to repentance those who have blank, 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 blank. He said, and the reason why I want to see what you do with that is because, um, he said, my dad um, really came to Christ as a man in middle age and just poured himself out, just burned out. He was there every time the church was open and uh, was just, really deeply committed and enthusiastic about the faith. And he said, after about two years, my dad suddenly just walked away. And, and he said, I want to know what you think. Uh, is it possible that my dad could come back? So he was asking a, a deep, profoundly personal question. And um, we'll talk about that a little bit as we go along. Now, technically, we're not supposed to deal with chapter six this week. Um, but what we may do is take a little bit of time and question and answer to uh, see if you want to probe some of that. But um, the, uh, the beauty and the power of uh, the book of Hebrews, the relevance of the book of Hebrews is here is something that is, is amazing in the vision that it gives us for who Jesus really is. Uh, the decisiveness of what he has accomplished on our behalf. And not only is it worth persevering in the faith on the basis of the identity of Christ and what he has done, it's worth paying a tremendous price for that perseverance. Um, we also live in an age in which people are facing probably uh, higher levels of persecution at this time in history than in any time in, in the church. Part, part of that is just because of the vast numbers of people in the world. Our brothers and sisters in China right now are facing tremendous pressure. We work with a, a ministry in China that trains house church pastors. Uh, Pat and I actually have had two of our friends, close friends from seminary. One uh, was in our wedding, but two of them who've been martyred for the faith. Uh, Sid Mizell was in uh, Afghanistan working with women in a rural area and was kidnapped, uh, refused to have a bodyguard uh, in that context. She knew the implications of that and she was martyred. And then uh, 
close uh, friend of mine, Enos Westlaw from Africa, who was a professor there, was uh, killed by extremists as he was out ministering uh, in, a, in a village. So um, they would tell you, I think, um, my friends Enos and, and Sid would say, wow, it's, this is so worth it because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. It is so worth it to even give your life uh, for the sake of Christ. Okay. All right, so what I want to do is push the pause button there. I think we'll uh, stop and take a break if that's okay in, in just a moment. But before we do that, let me see if you have any questions kind of growing out of this first session. Uh, when we come back, we're really going to get into the meat of the book and really try to understand, you know, uh, how, how this book kicks off and what it's trying to do. But do you have any questions about this, just this introduction in terms of authorship, dates, uh, what Hebrews is trying to accomplish? Sean? Uh, is there any references to Apollos being in Rome or his relationship, say, with Timothy? Yeah, we do know Apollos was a part of Paul's mission. So um, he is one of the inner circle in Paul's mission. So he certainly had a relationship with Timothy. They would have had a good bit of interaction. He does uh, make it over to Corinth, and we don't know if his connections were primarily, you know, through um, just kind of the interaction that would have naturally taken place with people in Rome. If you go to Romans chapter 16, Paul gives a whole list of people that he had a relationship with in Rome that uh, at that time, Paul had never actually been to the city itself, but he gives a whole list of people um, that he is related to, some of them very high in government. Um, so we're, we're not really sure that Apollos made it uh, to the city of Rome itself, but um, he certainly would have had interaction, and it would have been a natural jump for him to go over and to, to kind of make that next step. Because when you came to Corinth, Corinth was kind of a hinge in the Mediterranean world. It would have only taken a couple of weeks during decent weather to get to Rome from Corinth. Um, you, you had to go when shipping was okay, which was only three to six months of the year. But, um, but it was something that was not hard to do to get over there. Yes? The lack of clarity on authorship adds controversy to the inclusion of Hebrews in the canon. Yeah, uh, Hebrews was one of the latter books to be received into the canon. Um, I mean, understand that the way that the canon developed in the first century was no, no one ever kind of got together a, a big group of books and said, okay, we've got to narrow this thing down. Bibles are going to be way too big, you know, for people to carry around. Uh, it wasn't that kind of thing. Uh, what happened was the books circulated among the churches, and if you will, the cream kind of rose to the top in terms of the books that, that the churches found valuable. They believed that they were based on apostolic teaching, testimony, that kind of thing, and, um, and, and were actually helpful in terms of Christian life. So when you get down to um, Athanasius and you know, kind of the affirmation of the 27 books we know of as the New Testament, uh, what you have is um, just a recognition that these are the books that had come to prominence. The reason why Hebrews is among a small group that were toward the latter part of that process is simply because it doesn't carry um, an apostle's name and was not immediately associated with an apostle. Like, you know, Mark 
early on, we think, was associated with Peter's testimony and that kind of thing. I think the reason why Hebrews <coughs> made it into the canon was because it was so rich, clearly apostolic uh, teaching in Christianity, orthodoxy. Um, it just meshes very, very well with the rest of the books in the New Testament. So um, Hebrews more struggled to, to just kind of make that last jump into the official books because of that lack of obvious, you know, identification with an apostle, I think. Okay, yes? What would have been a reason for an apostle not to include, or whoever the author was, to not include their name? Oh, that, that's a great question. You often did not include names in um, narrative or even even speeches, <coughs> that kind of thing, at the beginning in the ancient world. It was seen as kind of bad form to do that, that you're kind of naming yourself. Uh, you notice in Luke's narrative of Acts, uh, he never names himself. He uses what we call the we sections, beginning in Acts 16, uh, where he alludes to himself, but he doesn't name him, himself. That was just a common thing in the ancient world. Um, some documents, you, you would have just assumed that uh, the immediate community to whom this was originally written would have known who the person was. Uh, so I think with Hebrews specifically, they're receiving it handed to them by somebody who delivered the book originally, so they would have all known who, who it was. Letters were different, so we find uh, letters often fronted by the author's name because that was the form. It was like us writing Dear John or something like that. Think about it, even, even the modern world, if I said to you, uh, who's your favorite novelist? You know, do they name themselves in the in the actual text of the novel itself? They don't, because it just wouldn't fit the form, and it's similar here. What Hebrews does is kicks off with God, God, in the beginning, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The I focus is different. Yes. I have to get to the written, you know, that I have one letter, even though it's divided now. Kind of a serial sermon, yeah. that kind of thing. No, actually, it was it was a single document. Um, there has been debate in he Hebrews research in the past of whether chapter thirteen was kind of attached on to the end of the sermon. But but now um, it's it's very very commonly accepted that chapter thirteen was an integral part from the very beginning. The very ending of the book, you have an epistolary attachment where the author kind of greets them and says, you know, uh, hope to get to come to you and Timothy, you know, all those kind of references. But what we think happened was you had this crafted sermon that's then sent to this community and there's just a, a brief epistolary type attachment added to the very end. So that, that probably is the part after the benediction that was just, um, just kind of added on. And so then we, or the people above us, <laughs> cannot made it you didn't have chapter and verses come along till uh, about five or six hundred years ago. Uh, you had that kind of trickled in, but even if you go back to the 1400s, 1500s now, you'll find that copies of the Bible didn't have uh, verse divisions even, you know, chapter and verse divisions. I'm sorry. I read it all at once, just by reading it. Yeah. The thing that you notice when you read 
Hebrews is the repetition. You notice that? Uh, the author keeps coming back around. That is an oral dynamic that we have in the book that makes sense if you read it as one thing. Because it's, it's just so beautifully crafted to kind of fit together and pick up on themes and move back in. Um, and we'll see that as we go along. Okay? Yes? You mentioned along the way that the author utilizes, he said something like over 20 or 25 identifiable rhetorical techniques and, yeah. and some rabbinic techniques. I'm not a scholar on linguistics, but I'm struggling to think of even five right. rhetorical techniques. Yeah. Are, are you being in the book? You're, you're struggling to see them here? Well, I'm or? struggling, first of all, to think of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even five yeah. techniques. And are they, I don't necessarily want to study on this, but it's, it's just shocking to me that there are so many yeah. that have been identified in this book and all based together. Right. Yeah. Um, two, two things. First of all, um, we don't study rhetoric uh, in, our, in our cultural context like they did in the ancient world. So... These may be a little bit foreign to us, but I'm going to show you some that will make perfect sense right when we start into chapter one. So I'll show you some examples of that. Uh, when I was writing my dissertation, my dissertation was on the structure of the book. And um, when I was, uh, I was grappling with all of these dynamics, literally every now and then I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would go, oh, oh, that's why that is there, because I would think of something else where there was a connection, you know, so I would write it down by my bed and then go back to sleep and uh, get up the next morning and take a look at it. Um, but it is, it is amazingly put together, amazingly put together. This, um, I don't know how long it would have taken the author to write the book, but normally these things were done over a period of weeks, probably, um, and... It would not have been an inexpensive process. Probably a book the length of Hebrews in today's money. If the author was having a scribe write it out, it would have cost over $2,000 uh, just in today's money. Um, Augustus at one point said that the scribes are bankrupting the empire because you couldn't run down to Kinko's, right, and get a, get a copy of your document made. You had to have a, a professional scribe kind of line it out and, and write it out where people could actually read it. Um, so uh, it's interesting, but we'll see a couple of those dynamics here in just a minute. And you had a question. Uh, and this may be a question that you'll answer later on. It just has to do with the overall structure of the book of Hebrews. Right. Um, I am very struck with sort of platonic shades, and I think you talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but can, do you want to talk about that now? Or yeah, later? let me give you a quick answer, and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of take a break, and we'll come back and look. Um, up until the mid-50s, 1950s, uh, it was a dominant idea that Hebrews was basically Platonic, um, really associated with writings like uh, the author Philo, who was from Alexandria, who was very kind of Neoplatonic in, in thought. And yet, um, research started coming along in the late 50s, early 60s that showed that Hebrews is not really coming from a Platonic worldview. There's language here that is Platonic, uh, the idea of shadows. This was a shadow of something else. But what uh, Ronald Williamson showed in the early 1960s in a major monograph was you have the same language, but a very different worldview. So it's, it's, it still places an emphasis on heaven and earth and the movement between heaven and earth. But it also, one major difference with Platonism is it places a great deal of emphasis on historical trajectory. Mm -hmm. 
that the world is going somewhere. You have past age, current age, future age, and this, this kind of linear history is different from what you find in kind of thoroughgoing uh, Platonic thought. The, the heaven and earth kind of world is Jewish apocalyptic thought. It's profoundly Jewish. And this idea that God has broken into the world, broken into the world to, to accomplish things, and that uh, where we're ultimately heading is the coming together of heaven and earth. Uh, we can talk about that some more because that's, kind of that's kind of an interesting idea. But it, it's not Platonic in the sense that uh, this world is bad, you know, the physical world is, is we just want to kind of escape from this to get to the real spiritual existence. That's Platonism. Uh, Hebrews is part of early Jewish Christian tradition, which is Jewish apocalyptic. That is, that God has created this world as a good, good thing, good world. And what God is about is transforming this world, not trashing it. Okay? So um, more Jewish apocalyptic than Platonic. All right, thank you for these good questions. Let's take a 15-minute break, okay? And then we'll come back and uh, keep going. Thank you.
looked at a YouTube video of a Christian charity group called Apologetics. Oh, yeah. The source with no name. Are you familiar with that? Oh, you, you've got to go check it out. It's, oh, really? Apologetics is a, they, they take uh, popular music and they put Christian lyrics to it. It's a source with no name. A horse with no name from America. They do the book of Hebrews. From the Bible classes. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought you, somebody would have told you This is a part of the Bible project? Well, the, the video part is going through the Bible project, going through each book. But then they put, you know, the song. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I love that. It is so much fun. I love those kind of creative series. You doing all right? I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm really some of the, you know, I read the commentary extra. Sure. I, the whole thing. Sure. I, I like what you're adding to that. This is good. I appreciate you coming. Yes. No, no. My, one of our daughters went to Belmont. Oh, yeah. So we, were, we went over to, to Nashville quite a bit. Nashville's a great place to go. Oh, it, it was really something. I love the music. Yeah, yeah. Let's get started back. 
Um, so glad you came back. It would have been very discouraging if you had not come back. So, no, thank you. Uh, so good to be with you so far uh, this morning, and thank you very much for your good questions and your interaction. Uh, what we want to try to do over uh, the next hour and a few minutes is we're going to just say a brief word about how the book works, and then we're going to come back to that time and again as we kind of walk our way through the Christology of the book. Uh, but we really want to plunge into Hebrews itself. And you're going to have to listen a little faster in this next session. Okay. <laughs> uh, because we're running a little bit behind. But, um, but that's OK. We'll get, we'll get to where we need uh, to get eventually. So let me say uh, a word about how the book works uh, before we actually launch into the text of the book itself. Uh, one of the big questions through the years has been this debate about how do you understand the, the outline of Hebrews. You probably have seen a commentary or, or a study Bible that, for instance, follows the Christ is greater than theme. Christ is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels, greater than Moses, uh, that kind of thing. Um, what I think the key is to understanding how Hebrews works is it's, it's a sermon and like a sermon, both in the ancient world, and if you think about it in our world, there's a movement back and forth between kind of exposition that unpacks the scripture and exhortation that says, okay, now this is what we need to do about it. Uh, so what Hebrews does is uh, the book will kind of unpack um, different Old Testament scriptures about Christ, and we'll go with that for a little bit, and then it will turn to addressing the audience and saying, now, this is what we need to do. So if you look on your handout, um, the way that I've lined it out um, is that you have kind of the Christology of the book, the part that we're going to focus on going down the left-hand side, and then the exhortation material is on the right-hand side of the page. So you kind of, uh, you kind of have this... Uh, not to suggest that the author's doing, you know, different things that are fragmented. No, it very much weaves together in a beautiful, powerful oratory, but you've got to have to sort it out uh, in order to understand the dynamics of what is going on here. What we're going to see as we move into the uh, introduction here in just a minute is just a beautiful way the author launches the book. And then we're going to go into this first movement of the book's Christology, which focuses on the Son in relation to the angels. So we're going to say, okay, why does he set up this comparison with the angels in this whole first movement of the book? We're going to talk about why that happens. Uh, he kind of inserts a bit here in 2, 1 through 4. He's talking about Jesus. He says, God did this. God spoke this. But then he turns to the audience and says, now we need to pay more careful attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away from it. And he exhorts them and says, okay, if this is who Jesus is, then this is how we need to respond. So he'll do that in the exhortation. Then he goes back into this kind of logic, logical developing Christology, and then he's going to launch into more exhortation. So he weaves it together. It's kind of like if I'm preaching a sermon today and I say, uh, point number one, Abraham was called out. Uh, of the Ur, Ur of the Chaldees. And I kind of unpack the text, you know, from Genesis on that, and I turn and say, now listen, folks, you know, you and I get called out sometimes, don't we? You know, and by faith, we need to respond to that. 
and I, I kind of turned to you and exhorted you. Then I went back and said, okay, point two is not only was Abraham called out, he was called in. And kind of went through and unpacked texts about him being called in. And then, and then turned and said, uh, where are you being called at this point? What's your destination spiritually right now? You see what I mean? So you have this kind of dynamic in Hebrews as well, where the author kind of unpacks the Christology, but then inserts in that various forms of exhortation, uh, promises, warnings, uh, direct exhortation in terms of ethically what we need to do about something. So you, you have this movement back and forth in a very dynamic flow uh, in the book. If we think about the Christology itself, and kind of look at the details here as we go along, in some ways, the Christology is going to develop both logically and spatially. Let me tell you what I mean by that. He's going to start, in, really, in the introduction of the book with Jesus as exalted to the right hand of God. He's focusing on Psalm 110.1, which we'll focus on in just a minute. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he's going to start with Christ as exalted. He's going to show the implications of that in relation to the angels, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. And then in 2, 5 through 9, he's going to make a transition to incarnation. So that we're going to see in chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, it's not Christ exalted, it's Christ incarnate. He's one of us. He's one of us. He has taken on flesh and blood. And we're going to talk about the, the amazing humility of God. It's actually coming and becoming one of us, sharing our humanity in order to win our salvation, deal with the, the crippled nature of the world. But God does that by condescending to becoming one of us in the person of Jesus, his son. So you have incarnation. Then you have appointment as high priest, which is going to be the focus of 5.1 through 7.28. He's taken from among human beings, the author says. Every high priest, this is chapter 5, verse 1, is taken from among human beings and is appointed on behalf of human beings in the things related to God. So he's taken from among us, he's appointed high priest, and because he's appointed as a unique high priest, he has to have a unique offering. And therefore, the last movement of Christology we'll see focuses on the exaltation to the right hand of the Father, where Jesus goes right into the presence of the Father on our behalf, like a high priest going into the great Holy of Holies, with the, the implications of his sacrifice in bringing us back into the presence of God. So do you see the spatial movement? It starts with exaltation and moves all the way back around to exaltation. And it's logically developing. He was higher than the angels. He became lower than the angels to suffer and die. He couldn't have died if he hadn't been human. Uh, he was taken from among human beings and appointed as high priest. And then as the appointed high priest, he has a superior offering and one of the aspects of that offering that is superior is that it's actually made in the heavenly realm in the presence of God himself, not in merely an earthly tabernacle. Okay? So you have this kind of development of the book. Well, let's, let's kind of move into the text of Hebrews itself. And uh, let's take a look at this together. Let's kind of move on through here for the sake of time. 
All right, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Let's, uh, let's read this out loud together with me, if you will, and then we're going to kind of unpack it a step at a time here. Let's read it out loud together. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his deity, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Okay, um, let's take a look at this passage in terms of the purpose and the process. The purpose, what the author is trying to accomplish, and the process how the author actually accomplishes that purpose. All right, this is the book's introduction. Um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is introduction. In the ancient world, this would have been called an exordium, an exordium, or a proem, perhaps. But we just think of it in terms of an introduction to the book. And introductions in the ancient world were meant to accomplish two things. First of all... The introduction was supposed to grab the listener's attention. So if you think about the best speeches that we hear today, the person stands and the first thing they do is they reach out and they just grab you with a story or a quotation or something and you're, you're in. You know, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're just sucked in right from the beginning. Well, that was the same uh, idea in ancient Greek rhetoric Philo of Alexandria, for instance, who was a contemporary of the author of Hebrews, writes about the introduction of the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1, Philo said this, his introduction, his exordium, is one that excites our admiration in the highest degree. It just reaches out and grabs you. It reaches out and grabs you. Uh, one of the young men that I'm working with right now, he's a young Canadian, 18 years of age, no background of religion at all, and he and I have gotten to be friends at the place where I work out. He, he actually works there. And um, so he, he is one of a few people who are going through a Bible study that Pat and I are doing just to overview the story of the Bible right now. So he's never read the Bible before, and one of the first assignments was to read Genesis chapter 1. And I saw him a couple of days after uh, we'd had our first session, and he was going to be reading the beginning of Genesis. He said, man... He said, I read that first verse, and I went, whoa, because God created the heavens and the earth. I said, that's a very different way of looking at things, isn't it? He said, oh, he said, it really is. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. So that's what an introduction is supposed to do. It's supposed to reach out and, and really grab you. Now, the second thing that the author um, was supposed to do is to work together the main themes of whatever the work, you know, the speech or the writing uh, the introduction was supposed to weave together a number of the main themes that you have uh, from the book. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews does as well. We see here God speaking, uh, the Son as central to what the author is trying to talk about. 
Uh, he's going to talk about the forgiveness of sins. He's going to talk about the son's role in the creation of the world. He's going to talk about the son's superiority to angels. You have all of that crammed here in just a few verses. And it's done in a way that is beautiful and powerful. We were talking about the uh, rhetorical style earlier. And the whole of the first four verses is what we call periodic style in Greek. What that means is uh, this is one sentence. And what periodic style was, you had kind of a, a central main clause and all the other clauses are wrapped around it in grammatical relationship. But in the ancient world, this was seen as powerfully and beautifully crafted in that style that puts the whole thing together in one flowing sentence. Uh, commentator Ceslas Spick, a, a very prominent French uh, commentator from the mid part of the 20th century said, this is the most beautiful sentence in all of ancient Greek. It's beautiful, beautiful sentence. Uh, you have other types of stylistic forms that are used here, like alliteration, alliteration. Uh, so the author of Hebrews has just his first statement. Let me see if I can read it to you here. Listen in Greek and listen to the alliteration. This is just the first sentence and a half, or the first, not the first sentence and a half, the first verse and a half. Listen to it. Palumaros palutropos pale, hotheos lalesas, tois patrasen in tois prathetes. Do you hear? Do you hear the p sound? Let me read it one more time. Listen. Listen again for the p p p p sound. Palumeros kai palutropos pale, hotheos lesos, tois patrasen in tois prathetes. You hear that? Well, that alliterative kind of style here just grabs a Greek reader right from the beginning. It's just beautiful. It's powerful. So there's alliteration as one of the forms. You don't get that in English, but you get it in the Greek text. The other thing that the author does here is uses parallelism. Now, let me tell you that what we're going to see in the structure of these verses is chapter 1, verses 1 through the first part of verse 2, talks about God's revelation in two eras. And then the second part of it talks about the person, work, and status of God's Son. What's interesting in this second part, in 2b through 4, is you have seven descriptions of the Son. And you may know that in biblical literature, the number seven is significant as speaking of perfection. Uh, can point to something that is directly related to God. So the idea of six at times is associated with humanity. Seven has more the idea of perfection. And so you have these descriptions that you have in one, two, B, and following. And in the very beginning here of the passage, you have parallelism. And this is what I wanted to show you before we get into the details of the text. So this would be another of those rhetorical uh, devices that were used. You have this kind of parallel thing laid out. Um, and let's kind of leave that on the screen here. But you'll notice as I talk through these, you have a contrast of eras in the past, times of the past, over against these last days. We'll talk about what that meant. And then the recipients to our ancestors and to us. The agents, God spoke through the prophets, 
by the Son, and then the ways in various ways, and then in one primary way, that is the way related to the Son himself. So let's kind of talk through some of these dynamics um, as significant. So let me um, flip over here just one second. Okay, so the author starts with this idea of God speaking. At the heart of this uh, sentence, this complex sentence we have in 1, 1 through 4, you have this idea that God spoke. That's the main clause, that God spoke. That's the idea. And the beginning of, of the passage is God having spoken, God spoke. So let me kind of set up those, those ideas and, and unpack a little bit of what the author is trying to do here. So he says this, that in various, at various times, your translation may say, and in various ways, formally, God having spoken to the fathers through the prophets. And that's verse 1. Okay, so let's talk about that because he sets up first this former era. Let's talk about how he, how he discusses that. So notice that he begins with this idea that in at various times and in various ways, these two words are um, kind of closely associated. They can be temporal in nature, but they also have to do with various ways or manners. So the idea of various parts probably has to do with, you think about Old Testament history, God is working, God keeps coming back to people, revealing things through the prophets. Um, and prophets here is not just kind of the writing prophets. Uh, it would expand to also those uh, prophets who, who worked in Israel to bring the word of God to the people. Maybe they never had a book, but they were people who, like Elijah and others, were considered bringing the word of God to people. But even someone like David, who uh, gave us a part of the Psalms. The author of Hebrews would consider David one of the prophets because ultimately he was used by God to communicate in various ways. So you have the revelation coming over a long period of time, depending on kind of when you date uh, the events of the Old Testament era, but certainly kind of the heart of Hebrew history from the time of Abraham there at the uh, very beginning of the second millennium uh, BC, um, all the way down through the time of the Exodus, on into the time of the prophets to the Babylonian exile. You've got a vast span of time there, and you have revelation coming in a variety of ways. Tell me, what are some of the ways that the Old Testament presents the revelation of God is coming to people? What are some of the various ways? Dreams would be a, a prominent way. You think of Joseph and his dreams, for instance. Miracles. Miracles. God doing mighty, powerful acts in the world of some kind. What else? Angel of the Lord. Yeah, you have these uh, angelophanies or even theophanies at times where the angel comes and, and presents a message of some kind. Okay. What else? Predictions of the future. Yeah, you have promises that something's going to take place and then kind of the unpacking of that promise. Uh, we often think of the prophets as foretellers. It's actually a small part of what they actually do. They do that, 
but they are forth tellers in their own day to begin with. You know, they're, they're bringing a message to the people of their time. But at times, God includes in that messages that are going to be unpacked later on or events that will happen eventually. Uh, a scholar named Michael Fishbane, for instance, talks about the fact that God acts consistently in history. So you see literarily correspondences between events like the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan. You have these literary clues that are built in to say, hey, the God who brought them across the Red Sea is also the God who's taking them into the land of promise. Uh, and there's intentionality in these corresponding types of literary connections in the text. Okay, so you have God speaking. What does he mean when he says uh, formally, the little Greek word pale, uh, just means a former time that is set over against the last days here. Now, the last days was technical language in Judaism that meant the, the era initiated with the coming of Messiah. Okay, so it's not uh, necessarily the idea that, that they felt like, well, you know, God's going to end the world at any moment. Uh, this is language that means that we should live in anticipation of God acting powerfully in the world. Uh, but the last days was technical language for the time initiated by Messiah. When Messiah came to the world, it would initiate the final stage of human history. And it doesn't designate how long that would take. The former times are the times prior to the coming of Messiah. All right. So you have the former times, you have the last days initiated by Messiah, and then in Christian thought and theology, Messiah came the first time to initiate the last days. Messiah will come the second time to initiate the end of the age, the world to come, right? So you have this, this idea that you have two comings of Messiah in, in Christianity. The first initiated the, the age which we might think of as the, the, the age of God building the church and carrying out the mission in the world. And then when Messiah comes again, then God will transform the heavens and the earth, and we'll move into um, the age to come. Right. So that's what Hebrews begins with here. Um, you have formerly God spoke through the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by one who is his son, by one who is his son. So setting Jesus apart as the culmination of the revelation of God, the culmination of the revelation of God. Uh, now, what is significant about the fact that he, he actually uses a participle here, those of you who are into Greek grammar, his main clause is that God spoke through the Son, but the participle is, having spoken in this Old Testament era, God spoke. Having spoken, he spoke. What is significant about that? It's very significant. Because he's going to actually unpack in the rest of the book a lot of the words that we have from the Jewish scriptures. So he's very big on this having spoken part. Why is, it, why is it significant that you have kind of the foundation laid, if you will, with the having spoken part that Christ is in continuity with God's speaking throughout the, throughout the era? Um, what does that say to us in terms of the importance of the Old Testament? 
the vital nature, the foundational nature of the Jewish scriptures for the way we think about the nature of Christianity. The, what Jesus was trying to do in the world. What we should be doing as people in the world today. It's profoundly interrelated, profoundly connected. It's not two separate things. You know, kind of the thing that crops up every now and then when somebody will say, well, we just need to kind of get past the Old Testament stuff to get to the real thing in the New Testament. Look, this, uh, the Old Testament was the Bible. This, these were the scriptures of the early church. And we need to embrace them deeply. We need to know them deeply uh, because they are foundational for everything that we are, everything that we do in the church. One of the most exciting uh, places in the world right now in terms of what God is doing is in the Middle East. Um, I've had the privilege of teaching in Israel, um, working with both um, Jewish Messianic believers and Arab believers together. Uh, there's a, a school there that's a Messianic Jewish school, but now has about 30% of the student body are Arabs. And I've worked with Arab and Christian pastors together in learning the New Testament. And, and uh, it's amazing to see what God is doing in those Messianic Jewish and Arab con congregations in the land of Israel right now. I mean, big things are going on there. Uh, but you get, a, you get a sense of the Jewishness, the rich Jewishness of even the book of Hebrews. When I taught Hebrews there, it's chaotic. I mean, it's just chaotic uh, because it's Middle Eastern for one thing. But, uh, but I mean, people just raising their hands and they're seeing insights and stuff from the Hebrew scriptures that, you know, I'll, I'll say, okay, email me that thought right there, please. Uh, you know, because they're, they're teaching me stuff. Right? But, but it's because it's so profoundly interconnected. So in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then what he's going to do is he's going to move into a description of Jesus. And as I said, you have these seven different uh, descriptions of Jesus. If you were trying to communicate with somebody today who Jesus is, what Jesus was really all about. I mean, somebody, you're starting from scratch. And that's, again, one of the refreshing things about being in Vancouver. We love Vancouver. Uh, the highs are normally around 70, 72 uh, every day. It's beautiful. We step outside of my house, you see eagles in the trees and the mountains. It's just awesome. But another thing that we have just been amazed at is the opportunity to interface with people. We have a group of Iranians who are really good friends that we're just kind of doing life with, and they're open, you know? talking about this stuff and it, we just keep getting surprised by it and um, so for you if you're in that kind of situation where someone knows nothing nothing about Jesus at all how would you begin to describe who Jesus is well this is what the author of Hebrews does in 1 2 b and following he unpacks and so for the sake of time I'm going to kind of move us on through this uh, a little bit, but I want to talk to you about his descriptions that he is using here. So um, look at what he says here in the text. In your Bibles, it will say something like, in these last days he's spoken to us by one who is a son, who he appointed heir of all things. We appointed heir of all things. This is an allusion to Psalm 2, which was a prominent messianic psalm in the first century. So Psalm 2, you remember that, um, where it kind of ends up with, with 
God saying, kiss the son, uh, lest he be angry, that kind of thing. But at the heart of this, and the author's going to quote uh, Psalm 2-7 here in, one, in chapter 1, verse 5, but at the heart of this was the idea that the Davidic king, the messianic king, would be the one who would actually inherit an eternal kingdom. One thing that you have in the Psalms at times is you have a framework that could never have been fulfilled in a normal Davidic era, in the Old Testament era, for instance, because it moves to kind of the whole world. He will, the kings of the earth you know, will be ones who come and bow down before his feet, you know, that kind of idea. So when he says that he made him heir of all things, at the end of the age, the idea is that Jesus will rule over the whole world in justice. That he is going to be the one who inherits the whole world and really the whole universe. So he made him heir of all things, through whom he made the world. Uh, literally in the text, it's he, through whom he made the ages. It's kind of a septuagintalism for the whole of the created order. He is the one who made him. He, he, he is the one who made the whole world. He is the creator of all that is. And we see that in the New Testament. Um, he is the one who is uh, the one who actually laid the foundations of the earth, the author will say here in just a few minutes. He's going to talk about all things uh, being created by him. And we'll talk about that more when we see it come up here in a few minutes in chapter 1 uh, where he's quoting an Old Testament psalm. So think about it. He's the heir of all things. He's the one who's going to wrap things up at the end. He's going to be the one around whom all of the created order is brought together at the end of the age. He's also the one that laid the foundations of the earth in the very beginning. He's the creator of the world. And the author says he sustains all things by his powerful word. So you've got the end of the world, you've got the foundations of the world, and that Jesus himself, the idea is that he is the one who sustains all things through his powerful word. Of course, this is language that was used of God in the Old Testament. So passages like Psalm 33, 6, uh, the word of God is not static words on a page. The word of God is something that is a dynamic force in the world. So when we, talk, when we think of the Word of God, we think of the Bible, and that's very appropriate because in a few minutes the author is going to begin presenting Scripture as if it's falling from the lips of God. So Scripture as the embodiment of God's Word is a vitally important foundational concept, but the Word of God is, bigger, is a bigger concept than that. God speaks into the world in powerful, dynamic ways, and here the idea is that Jesus is actually the one who sustains all things by his powerful word. In other words, he's the one that's holding the atoms of the universe together. He's moving things along ultimately to his desired end is the idea. So you have the word as dynamic. So he is the heir of all things. He's the one who lays the foundation beginning and all things in the middle are sustained by him. These are heady claims, all right? But look at what he goes on to say say in the text. He says that he is the one um, who is sustaining th all things by his powerful word. Okay, but look right before that he gives descriptions of what Jesus is like in his person. He says he is the radiance 
of the glory of God, the radiance of the glory of God. In biblical literature, glory, dogza, or the kavod in uh, Old Testament, you've got this idea of God um, being glorious, and there are about 10 different uh, concepts or theological realities that glory can speak to. Um, one of the most important is that the glory is the manifestation of the presence of God. Glory is a manifestation of the presence of God. If you think about the Old Testament text like um, Exodus 33, the idea that, that God's presence would come down on the tabernacle in the Old Testament and in the wilderness, and this was a manifestation of the glory of God. It was, it was manifesting the presence of God. Um, and I think that that's probably what is in mind here. Uh, the idea that when you looked at Jesus, you saw a manifestation of the presence of God. Very close association, very close association between the Son and the Father. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul kind of gives a culmination of that section by say, saying that we see the light of the good news in the face of Jesus Christ. And in that whole context, he's been talking about the manifestation, the manifestation of the glory of God. Now, this goes back to Old Testament language of us as human beings being created in the image of God. And that ultimately what Christ came to do was make it possible for us to experience transformation so that you and I actually begin to manifest the glory of God. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from glory to glory. In other words, because you and I have been put back into relationship with God where we can know the presence of God face to face in all of God's glory, it begins changing us and transforming us. But that began by God coming in the presence of his son and manifesting the presence of God in glory. The radiance of the glory uh, is the idea that when you see the shining, if you will, the shining of the presence of God, Jesus is manifesting that presence. Okay? Right? And then he goes on and says he's the exact representation of his nature. Uh, the word here, character, uh, is a word that in the ancient world, the, the representation is the term I'm translating there, uh, was a word that was used in the ancient world of a tool initially where you would make a stamp, like using a seal or uh, an engraving tool that was used on coinage, for instance. So originally this word was used in Greek of the tool, but it came to be used of actually the image that was made by the tool, the impression, where you're seeing a direct identification and relationship between the image made and the tool that made it. Does that make sense? So there's a direct relationship that is going on there. But I like to think about it. What does it mean that Jesus is manifest, manifesting the, the, the nature of God in some way? I like to think about it relationally. Relationally. Here is a, uh, here is a picture of my son. And he has a lot more hair than I do now. He's taller than me if you count his hair, right? But you can see that the image of the father is stamped on the face of the son, right? Not, not as in a carbon copy, but look at the nose, my goodness, okay. Uh, look at the ears, 
those fly away here that we have. Uh, so you have the image of the Father is stamped on the face of the Son. When you see someone, uh, many, well, in fact, right before we were starting here, I was, I'd come over here and I was looking back at Nathan, and I said, I thought, you've got to be Frank Thielman's son. I'm talking Frank Thielman's brother. Uh, Frank, Frank Thielman is a good friend of mine. He's a New Testament scholar down at Beeson Divinity School, and I love him. I have such a profound respect for Frank as a New Testament scholar and as a person, as a Christian. I mean, just amazing, godly, godly man. But I saw the image there on the face, and you, you, you look at that with someone and you say, there's a very, very close, direct relationship there. And that's what, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, when you looked at Jesus, you saw this immediate identification with the Father, one who was manifesting the nature of the Father himself. All right? So again, this is very, um, very exalted kind of language that is used here. Now notice, notice what he goes on to say. So we, we've got, he, he laid the foundations of the world. He's going to be the heir at the end of the world. He sustains all things in his nature. He's a manifestation of the character of God. He's manifesting the presence of God. And then he's going to uh, go on and he says, having made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this is a reference, obviously, to Jesus' death for sins that the author is going to unpack in terms of priesthood in the remainder of the book. But it's having made purification of sins, having died as a sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's the most quoted and alluded to New Testament, uh, Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And the reason is because the early Christians broadly embraced this as fulfilled in the exaltation of Jesus after his <clears throat> death, his resurrection, and him being exalted to the right hand of God, which um, in ancient Judaism, the right hand was a place of authority and power. Uh, this, this idea of enthronement. Some of you uh, read the Richard Bauckham uh, article that was assigned for today, and if you haven't read that, you can access it through the syllabus uh, that was set up here, and you can see us about that. But one point that Richard Bauckham was making is that uh, in the past, people have said, well, maybe Jesus was just kind of an angelic figure or something like this. And Bauckham has done amazing work to say, no, look, in ancient Judaism, no one shares God's throne. God is the only one who sits on his throne. God is the only one who creates the world. And so you have this direct identity of Jesus with God the Father in this idea of sitting on the throne, in the idea of, of creating the world. These are images that say there's a direct identity between Jesus and God, direct identity, okay? It's not the same language. Those of you who have studied uh, the early church where the church got into dialogue and discussions about the nature of Christ and all that, it's a different way of talking about it and thinking about it. It's a very Jewish way of thinking about it. So Bakken basically goes in and he's answering the question, how could Jews of the first century who were monotheists to the core, how could they buy this idea of this direct identity between Jesus and God? And he goes in and he, he unpacks that theologically and explains it in a way that's pretty dynamic. Okay, So that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. 
Uh, he's kind of. That again? I'm sorry. Would you prefer? Let us write that down. Yeah, Richard. Okay. Richard Bacham. You can start with the article that is in uh, okay. Matt. If you'll help me, we'll let's make sure that everybody can get at that. There's an article. It's not easy reading. A couple of you came up and told me I kind of <laughs> struggle with that reading. But but Richard has gone on and published the books that are mentioned in that article are now out. Uh, Jesus and the God of Israel, I think, is the title of. of uh, one of them, and we can we can talk about that. But I can get get that for you. But it's a uh, it's very very powerful stuff, um, and he's making the case for this idea of this direct identity between Jesus and the Father. All right, so he 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 culminates this first four verses in this idea of Jesus being exalted to the highest place in the universe. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then verse 4 says, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. All right? So it's the idea that when Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God, he's given the highest position in the universe. Having become as much better than the angels. So what he's doing is he's using the angels as a reference point. The angels were authoritative. They were dynamic messengers and ministers on behalf of God. And they're highly respected in, in early Judaism. Highly respected. He's not raising the issue of the angels because there was a problem of kind of worship of angels or something like that. He's using these authoritative figures as a reference point. And he's in essence saying, look, if you respect angelic beings as, as these powerful authoritative messengers of God, then you should have even greater respect for Jesus because he was exalted above the angels to the position of highest authority in the universe. And he has been given a name which is superior to their name. Now, the, the word there, anima, is a significant word. This is a, a Greek term. Um, actually, God at times was called the name. Because in ancient Judaism, you did not speak the name of God. In most forms of Judaism, you didn't speak the name of God. So even with Yahweh in the Old Testament, when you have that in Hebrew, a lot of times we'll pronounce Adonai, the Lord, or something like that as a way of referring to God so that we don't you know, speak the name of God because you don't ever want to do that irreverently. right? So at times, God was actually referred to as the name. But this word could also be used of status, position, uh, I think what the author is doing is actually he's alluding to 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is the prophecy of Nathan to David. And over, I think about 13 times, this word anima is used in the Greek translation of that Old Testament text. I will give you, David, a name that is greater than the names of the great ones of the earth. And he says, your son, the Davidic Messiah, will build a house for my name for my name, and I will give him foundationally a name, and he will actually be one who promotes my name, is kind of the idea, okay? So you have uh, Jesus, he kind of culminates this introduction by saying that he's been given a name that's even greater than the angelic beings, and that's what launches in to this string of Old Testament texts in chapter one, verses five through 14, okay? All right. Yes. Do you, do you infer then that 
He is saying that Jesus has been given a name. What? Y H W H? Well, not ex- not exactly. Okay. Um, there are times we do have texts in the Old Testament, um, something like Psalm forty-five, for instance, where the Lord. In, in fact, I'll I'll do I'll talk about this a little bit in my lecture on Wednesday night. That you do have passages. Um, another example would be Isaiah forty, where the Lord is coming to the earth, prepare the way of the Lord, and it's clear that that passage, which in its Old Testament Isaianic context is speaking about the Lord God, it is applied directly to Jesus, that the Lord has come to earth. Same thing with Paul's statement in Philippians chapter two, verses five to eleven, what we call the Christ hymn there. That is riffing on Isaiah 45 and then Isaiah 52, 53. And the whole point of of the Isaiahic passage in 45 is that God, the Lord God, is not like the gods that you make with your hands. And it's clearly a reference to the Lord God. And yet Paul is applying it or using a hymn that applies it directly to Jesus. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. That Jesus is Lord. So you have you have a distinction. The reason why I'm hedging just a little bit is in the Psalms of chapter one that we're going to see in just a minute. You actually have the Lord said to my Lord. So you have both God the Father referred to as Lord and Jesus referred to as Lord. And um, Richard Bauckham even sorts that out a little bit in his article that that you read. But so there's not a one to one correspondence in every case, but you have a direct identity. And at times you actually have uh, Lord passages of the Old Testament applied directly to Jesus himself. Yes, over here. Um, so if I'm getting ahead of you, let me know. But, um, you used the word riff just then, so if we use that kind of uh, musical analogy. Yeah. Yeah, for me, the baseline here is in Genesis 1 and 2 that keeps this sounding. Yeah. Even the whole emphasis on in the beginning. Biblical study and New Testament studies uh, 100 years ago, you had people like Rudolf Bultmann and others say that, well, what happened was Christianity got out there into the world. Jesus had tragically died. And so as time went on, you have this kind of divine man thing come on. And, you know, as you get toward the end of the first century, the church has created all of this stuff of light and darkness that you have in John and all of this. And, and, and then the Qumran scrolls were found in the late 1940s. And you have Judaism prior to the coming of Jesus and then up to 70 AD where you have this contrast between light and darkness and all of these Jewish themes that you find right there in the New Testament. Um, so what, what I believe has been shown in the works of people like um, Richard Bauckham and Larry Hurtado and others 
is that this early high Christology, this idea that Jesus is directly identified with God, is very early. I mean, right from the beginning of the Christian movement, they would say. Because even you look at the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, it is something that already probably was formed before Paul used it. And if that's the case, then he's using that in Philippians, which was written in about A.D. 60. You know, it's traditional form already. And, you know, folks, 20, 20 25 years ago, it's not very long of a period of time. And so you have the early church embracing this idea of Jesus being directly identified with God very, very early. And these are Jews. The whole movement was Jewish from the very beginning until it started moving out and in, in embracing the Gentile world as well. So I'm wondering how much of it even some of it has to have gone back to the Roman map because you yes. unpacking the whole Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Nobody's forgetting that. Yeah. Well, and here's here's the thing. If you want to boil down uh, a central question on whether the Christian movement is true, it all boils down to this question. Has God really broken into the world in fresh ways? Directly. I mean, that, that is the question. If God has broken into the world in fresh ways in the person of Jesus, and, and if you don't start with the presupposition that no, God can't do that because we know it's a natural world and you have cause and effect and all that. No, the whole point is that if God is the creator of the natural cause and effect world, which we all know, and we should value science and appreciate and embrace the best fruits of science. But the question is, can the God who created the universe break into the universe to do things in this world, to accomplish things? And the answer of the New Testament is, yes, he can. And, I, and, and honestly, folks, I've been with Christian believers from the western part of China and believers in Israel, where God's still doing this kind of stuff today in the world. He's breaking in in, in miraculous ways. And, and it's not something that people can make up. <laughs> um, we can talk about that more at another time. But, but my point is, that is the central question. Does God have the ability to break in? Because what happened with Paul on the Damascus Road is that this guy who is completely convinced of his worldview, God intercepts him and says, um, it's not what you think. Which I, I think is just pretty cool and, and amazing. So, uh, and it's not that God does that all the time. You know, but but it's, it's that. That is what has happened here is that God has broken into his world to do things, to put things in motion in the world so that ultimately he will bring about the transformation of this broken world in which we live is the idea, all right? So what the author does here is he launches this with that thought that God has really spoken into the world. God has said something that we must listen to, that we need to listen to. Now, let me tell you where we go from here um, in the book, and that is um, we we move into the balance of, of chapter one, but let me, let me kind of end our little thought on the, um, on the introduction with this. And then I'm at least set up and give you the framework for what happens in chapter 1 through uh, chapter 2, verse 4. But here's, here's the, the thought. Notice that what Hebrews does in addressing this problem of people drifting away from the faith is he lays the foundation with theology, with good, solid teaching about who Jesus is. And the reason is because the way we think 
does affect the way we live in the world. It really does. I mean, your worldview, the way you see the universe working will affect the way that you approach the world. It, it will. Uh, back in the 1950s, Dorothy Sayers, you know, mystery writer, friend of C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers uh, was uh, living at a time when there were people saying, let's just do away with theology, let's just do away with all this tedious dogma and all these, you know, kind of ideas. And, uh, and this is what she, she said about it. She said, official Christianity of late years has been having what is known as bad press. We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine, dull dogma, as people call it. The, fa the fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man, and the dogma is the drama. Christ, in his divine innocence, said to the woman of Samaria, Ye worship, and thank you for the sound effects, that's uh, Ye worship, ye know not what, being apparently under the impression that it might be desirable on the whole to know what one was worshiping. He thus showed himself sadly out of touch with the 20th century mind, for the cry today is away with the tedious complexities of dogma. Let us have the simple spirit of worship, just worship no matter what. The only drawback to this demand for a generalized and undirected worship is the practical difficulty of arousing any sort of enthusiasm for the worship of nothing in particular. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, what, what Hebrews wants to do is to draw us into thinking more clearly about who Jesus is in our interaction with the scriptures. To think more clearly about that. To think more clearly about the nature of what he has done. The decisiveness of what he has done on our behalf. Um, and so we see that really launched in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. All right. Now, let me kind of move to um, the next unit. And you, have, you still have, are not listening fast enough, so um, <laughs> you won't be able to get very far here. But let me, give you a, let me give you a bit of what is going on here and explain a few things as we, uh, we take a look at what the author is trying to do um, in, this, in this section. So um, <clears throat> I want to read it to you, and then um, we'll talk about the purpose and the process of what the author is doing here, and then just kind of unpack a few things as we culminate today, and then we'll get caught up a bit uh, tomorrow. All right? So uh, let me read it to you first, and then we'll talk about kind of what the author is doing uh, in 5 through 14, 1, 5 through 14, what the author does is give a string of Old Testament texts. Right? So listen to those Old Testament texts. You actually have three pairs of texts and then a final culminating text. So notice that in this passage too, remember how we saw there were seven descriptions of Jesus. Now you have seven Old Testament texts that are quoted. Um, and you have three pairs and then a culminating quote of Psalm 110.1 that we talked about just a minute ago. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have fathered you. And in another place he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. But when again he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And he says of the angels, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, 
oh God, is forever and ever. And a righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So God, your God, has anointed you over your companions with the oil of rejoicing. And, still addressing the sun, you founded the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you continue, and they will all grow old like a garment, and like a robe, you will fold them up, and like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never run out. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? Okay, where we are in our structure of the book is this first point here, the son superior to the angels. So the purpose of this unit, what the author's doing, is he is using a string of pearls, the rabbis would call it. This was a rabbinic technique where you stitch together different passages that related to each other in order to come up with something that's powerfully authoritative from the scripture. The idea was you would get to the end of this string of pearls and everybody in the room would be going, okay, yeah, I get it, I get it. So uh, the purpose of this string is to make the case for the superiority of Jesus to the angels. Now he's setting something up that I'm not going to tell you about quite yet. But, but Get that in your mind first, that this string of passages is meant to just drive home with force the idea in e from every angle, Jesus is superior to the angelic beings. He's not just a normal spiritual being. He's, he is superior to the angelic beings is the idea. Okay? Now, he does that with this rabbinic technique. Uh, we're not going to take time to go into uh, a lot of the details, but let me tell you just a couple of things. Notice that he frames the whole thing with, or to which of the angels did he ever say this statement? And then he comes around right before the quote of Psalm 110.1. He says that again, for the, which of the angels did he ever say? And then he quotes Psalm 110.1. This was called an inclusio. In the ancient world, not only did you not have chapter and verse divisions, uh, you didn't have headings for sections, and the words all ran together. There weren't even spaces between the words in ancient documents. And so what the authors would do at times is they would mark beginning and endings of sections in order to say, okay, this is where I'm closing out what I started back up a little while ago. All right, and we're going to see that a number of times in the book of Hebrews. For which of the angels did he ever say? For which of the angels has he ever said? Okay. Um, and then this string of pearls, this quotation, chain quotation, that the authors kind of stitched together. Um, and let me just very quickly give you the, the pairs here and kind of the main point of the pairs. And then today we're going to just conclude with one of the main points that the author makes here to drive home uh, kind of his point he's wanting to make. So you have three pairs of text. The first is Psalm 2-7 um, and 2 Samuel 7-14. They're joined together because both of them use the word son. Both of them use the word son. You are my son, Psalm 2-7 says. Today I have begotten you, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. 
Those words stitch together. You know how when we're doing Bible study today, we'll look for passages that have common language. Well, the rabbis did that too. This was called verbal analogy, would be the English translation of it. Verbal analogy. You found uh, passages you would interpret in light of one another because they have similar language. So you'll notice that uh, both of these refer to the Davidic heir as being the son. Now what does it mean in these passages when it says, I will be a father to him, today I have begotten you. Well, this was not language of ontology, as we would think of like me fathering a son biologically. It's not talking about that. What it's talking about is God identifying with the Davidic monarch and saying there's an immediate close relationship. I'm adopting David's son as my son, that kind of idea. So these, these were used, both passages in the ancient world were used in enthronement ceremonies where God is um, identifying with and affirming the unique role of the king in that, in that context. That's the idea. So it's not, it's not uh, you know, in theology, one of the ideas that developed was adoptionism, that, well, maybe Jesus just became God when he was raised from the dead. Now, what's the problem with that idea, even from the context here that we've already seen in Hebrews, that Jesus just kind of became God when he was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand? Well, he was, he was the agent, the father's agent in creation is the idea. It's an affirmation that God created the world, but he did it through God the Son, Jesus, is, is the idea. So this is not adoptionism. This is the idea that God is identifying directly with the Davidic king, and Hebrews would say the Messiah himself. God is, is identifying him as his son. Okay? All right? The second pair... Sorry, when you say identify, do you mean like publicly proclaim that this is what Pro, yeah, was? It's, yeah, it's a proclamation. Yeah, yeah. And, and in the ancient world, even the original context, that's what this would have been. It would have been a proclamation at the ascension of the Davidic monarch to the throne. So Hebrews is reading that as ultimately fulfilled in Jesus moving to the enthronement over the whole universe as Messiah. Okay, thank you for asking for that clarification. The second pair of passages is Psalm 97.7. The wording's not exact. It could be Deuteronomy 32.43. Uh, and this paired with Psalm 104, verse 4. And this is speaking about the fact that the angelic beings are just ministers that are sent out on behalf of God to do his stuff. And it's contrasted with the fact that the angels are ones who are actually worshiping the Son. Let all the angels of God worship him, is the idea there. So you have the, the angelic beings as ministers. Um, in, in the context of that passage, of the uh, Psalm 104 passage specifically, you've got the angelic beings were uh, understood as there at Sinai, for instance, in the storm, as lightning and the winds. This was a manifestation of the presence of the angelic beings. And you actually find a strata of that kind of idea in the Old Testament literature that the angelic beings are identified with the storm that God is riding on, that kind of idea. So, but the point here is that they are ministers that are sent out. Jesus is the one who is enthroned, and they worship him. So again, only God receives worship, and only God sits on his throne is the idea. 
So Jesus is superior because of his unique relationship with the Father. He's superior because the angels have a different kind of, of identity and ministry. And then finally, the Son is superior, Psalm 45 and Psalm 102, because of the Son's eternal nature and, and enthronement over the universe and his creation. He's the one who has created the world, and he's also the one that will wrap things up in the so I want to kind of conclude by focusing on that idea, and then we'll, we're going to come back tomorrow, and the first thing we'll do is we'll see how this leads into a very powerful exhortation of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So um, what I want to do is just kind of finish by looking at this one passage. If you'll look at chapter 1, uh, verses 10 and following, and I want to kind of conclude with where the author culminates right before he goes back and he quotes Psalm 110.1. Um, so let's, let's take a look at this passage, and then if you would give me just a moment, I kind of want to wrap us up, wrap us up here. Okay? Look at what he says. You in the beginning, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Um, so just like when you and I build a house today, my, my wife and I built a, a beautiful home on five and a half acres in Tennessee about 20 years ago. And the first thing we did is we laid the, you know, had the foundation laid. I worked as the contractor on the house. We designed the house. I worked as the main contractor. And on the west side of the house, it had kind of sloped down. We had to move dirt over there. And so I had a bulldozer go over and over and over and over that to pack it down because that's where the foundation was going to be on the west side of the house. And we do that, especially in an earthquake zone, which we had there in West Tennessee, New Madrid Fault. You, you put rebar in there and you, and you pour the concrete and you lay a solid foundation. Well, what this text is claiming in applying it to Jesus is that Jesus is the one who laid the foundation of the universe. The reason why the world acts as it does, and we, did, we expected the sun to actually come up this morning, the reason why we are spinning through the vastness of space in our galaxy is because there are things that hold that together and have established it in a way that works. This is the claim that is being made of Jesus. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will be destroyed, but you remain. In other words, there's an impermanence to the reality that we experience here in this world, right? That ultimately, uh, you see this as you get older. I just turned 60 this last week. And I can remember the transformations through the years of my grandparents' yard. My grandfather had 150 rose bushes in the yard. And it's, they're not there anymore. Right? Because this world is temporal. It's something that is in the process of, of transition and change. And then he goes on and uses this language. He says the world is, is, is like a garment that you in the end, Lord, are going to roll up. You're going to pack it away, if you will. It's going to be changed. Just like a, an old, I used to have an old sweatshirt that I loved. That I wore around the house on Saturday and one day I went into the closet and it wasn't there anymore <laughs> because my wife packed it away. She would not let me go in public in that shirt anymore. And this is claiming that Jesus will be the one who will roll up the universe at the end. He's not only the originating creator, he's the one who will terminate the universe at the end. He's the terminator. 
but you remain and your years will not come to an end. There's an eternality to the nature of who the Son is. And as we conclude, I want you to just think with me just for a minute about what's being claimed here, about what's being claimed here. One of the most dynamic ways I've heard the, the vastness of the universe described is actually by Robert Jastrow. You know Robert Jastrow's name, great astrophysicist, former head of NASA's Goddard Center, and trying to help people get their minds around what we're dealing with with the vastness of the universe, he used this analogy. And he said this, let the sun be the size of an orange. On that scale of sizes, the earth is a grain of sand circling in orbit around the sun at a distance of 30 feet. Have the image, orange, 30 feet away, grain of sand on that scale. The giant planet Jupiter, 11 times larger than the earth, is a cherry pit revolving at a distance of one city block. A block that way, it's a cherry pit, that's Jupiter. Saturn is another cherry pit two blocks from the sun. Pluto is still another sand grain at a distance of 10 blocks from the sun. On that same scale, the average distance between the stars is 2,000 miles on that scale. The sun's nearest neighbor, Alpha Centauri, is 1,300 miles away, about the distance from here to what, Dallas, Texas or so, something like that. On that scale. In the space between the sun and its neighbors, there is nothing but a thin distribution of hydrogen atoms forming a vacuum far better than any ever achieved on Earth. The galaxy on that scale, the galaxy on that scale, is a cluster of oranges separated by an average distance of 2,000 miles, the entire cluster being 20 million miles in diameter on that scale. The universe is much much bigger than we can get our heads around. And whatever you think about it, grasp the fact that what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the one who spoke and that came into existence. And so you get to the end of Hebrews chapter 1 with these claims of Jesus' unique relationship to the Father, his relationship to the angels in terms of them being the ministers who worship him and then ultimately him being the Lord who created the universe and the Lord who will wrap up the universe at the end. He is the one who has been seated at the right hand of all authority and power over the universe. He is the one. And so the idea is that we come to the end of this first chapter and we're all going, okay, Jesus is greater than the angels. I get it. Now what he does with that we'll see tomorrow. Let's have a word of prayer and kind of close our time for morning. Our Father, we thank you very much for your mercy to us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your patience in dealing with us as, as people as we try to grasp what you are doing in this world and the way that we should respond to it. And Lord, I thank you so much for these, these dear folks. It's so good to be at home here in a place I've never been before, but uh, it's great to have time with uh, people who care about your word and care about uh, things that matter. And I pray that as we spend our time together this week, that you would just open up our understanding to this book and we would grasp the, both the gravity and the beauty and the joy of this book. Uh, Lord, we pray 
and ask for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, George. Uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, being here today to kick things off. If you're, if you want to do lunch for Lula's on Thursday and you haven't signed up yet, please do that today, either online or you can just sign up at the table up, uh, right there, and uh, we'll start back.